Welcome to the Future Charlotte Podcast. I'm your host, Eli Portillo. I've spent more than a decade studying Charlotte, first as a journalist and now as assistant director of the UNC Charlotte Urban Institute. 20 years ago, this city looked radically different. No light rail, a smaller skyline, and breweries, what breweries? What will we look like in the next 20 years? That's what we're exploring on this show. Our guest today is Daryl Williams, founding partner and owner of Neighboring Concepts, former Mecklenburg County Commission member, and someone who's been involved in a, a lot of really interesting and wide-ranging parts of developing Charlotte. Daryl, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for the opportunity, Eli. So before we really dive in here, uh, tell me a little bit about yourself and for people who aren't familiar with uh, Neighboring Concepts, tell me about your firm and the work that, that you do. Yes, I'm Daryl Williams, uh, born and raised in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, graduated from Southern University in the Department of Architecture and moved to Charlotte back in 1983 and uh, founded the firm in 1996 uh, with two other partners. And our first office location was a 500 square feet space in what was called the West Charlotte Incubator which is a blue building that's still standing at the back of Johnson C. Smith campus. You know, we decided to start a non-traditional firm to focus on planning and revitalization in and around socially and physically challenged neighborhoods, urban neighborhoods like the ones I grew up in and that exist all over this country. You know, over these years, our firm has evolved now with 18 dedicated professionals who are as passionate as I am about the work that we do. Uh, our firm is led, the studio in our firm is led by Luke Vogmar and Daniel McNamee, who are soon to become partners in the firm. And while we still focus our work in these areas, we truly enjoy the opportunity to design a variety of different project types with the common theme of providing quality design and engaging with one another, regardless of our differences. You know, we like to really work on projects that promote history and culture, celebrate diversity, and projects that transform people and communities while also respecting uh, the environment that people are in. So tell me a little bit more about that relationship between the built environment and those intangible elements of community. Because I think that's a really interesting area that, you know, is hard for people to conceptualize sometimes because on one hand you have buildings, structures, spaces that are so real and tangible. And on the other hand, you have intangible aspects of community that people know are important, but they can't really sometimes put their finger on exactly. I think that's an interesting area that you do a lot of work in. Well, you know, we, we really do see architecture as a tool or mechanism which help to spur community engagement that can last long after a particular project has been completed. You know, we've been involved in projects where there was not a lot of engagement. And once the project was complete, engagement continued with that community, um, you know, because of what they really were able to appreciate coming together with the neighbors and talking about their community. So architecture brings that out in people. You know, the way spaces are designed, both indoors and outdoors, can either impede or support meaningful community engagement. You know, spaces are generally much more appreciated when the design is authentic 
and meaningful input is gathered from people who have to use uh, those spaces, whether they're indoors or outdoors. You know, so oftentimes we, sometimes we have preconceived ideas before engaging with the community. And we need to make sure we stay away from preconceived ideas and make sure that the design of building the spaces are inspired by the people, the history and the culture of a particular community. I think that's how you do it. It, it's sort of authentic. It sort of just comes out. It's not something that you're going in saying that we're going to use architecture to do this and that, but it just happens because it's something people really care about because it's something they touch and feel every day. What makes for good community engagement? Because that's one of those concepts that I think sometimes developers hear and they're, they're like, oh, I don't want to give the community a veto. I want to hear them, but you know, I still want to do my plans and community members here, and they think sometimes, is this just going to be lip service paid to our concerns? How do you kind of mediate that role in the middle and and make for productive, authentic community engagement that's not just lip service and at the same time isn't what developers often fear, um, a veto on any plan? Well, I think the first thing you have to do is clarify expectations. You know, I think there are some things that are not, is not something that is debatable, you know, some things developers have to do. Uh, and I think when you go in front of a community, you, you need to go on and share that with the community beforehand and let them know uh, what, they, what, they, what they have to do to make their project work and what is open for discussion based on community feedback and input. I think if that communication is clear up front, it makes it, makes it a lot easier and it, it, it provides trust right up front from the community when they know what they can influence and what they can change and what they cannot. And so I think that's, that's always important to be able to do that up front. What you don't want to do is mislead a community, making them feel like they can change anything. And oftentimes they cannot, you know. And so I think it's really building that trust with the community is where it starts, you know. And, uh, and I think because of our firm was built working with neighborhoods and communities, planning, and you know, and what we find is that because we have developed that relationship with the community, they trust us, you know. And when it comes to when it's time to design a building, it makes that process a whole lot easier. You know, when architects show up in the community for the first time to design a building, and the community, uh, you know. Uh, is not familiar with the individuals involved in those projects, there's always a lack of trust, you know, at the beginning. And it takes time. It takes time to build that trust because you, you, you're talking about communities that have been neglected for years and years. And, you know, there's, it's hard to build trust in communities like that. You know, you have to know that you're sincere and you're there uh, to help them uh, become a better community. And uh, that's not easy to do sometimes. How are we doing as a community in Charlotte? You know, this is like many places in the United States, a place that has a, a history of displacing communities. You know, you can look to prominent examples like the Brooklyn neighborhood, uptown highway construction, where a lot of black communities were displaced to make way for what was seen at the time as, you know, the shiny new thing that the community mm -hmm. had to have. How are we doing with involving communities and not just doing development 
to them, but doing development with them. Yeah, we are doing better, but you know, changing cultures and attitudes takes time. It takes a lot of time. And not only those who are doing the planning, but also helping the citizens understand that they have power and influence, you know, to, to initiate change. So I think it, it goes both ways, you know, and I, you know, so I think we're doing better, but, you know, there's more we can do. I think the community, we need to make sure that, that we as developers and designers, that we respect their opinion, you know, uh, for the projects that we're involved in uh, within their community. We have to listen. That's the first thing we have to do is make sure we listen. Uh, again, and not going with preconceived ideas, uh, but it takes time. You know, I think when you have events that happened back in, in the 50s and 60s, uh, what happened in Brooklyn, you know, uh, it, it makes it tough. It makes it tough for, for government to be able to build that trust in these communities. And, uh, and it, it's even harder for private developers who come into these communities and want to develop something when the community is not familiar with them. So it's just gonna take time. It's not gonna happen overnight, but I do think that the city of Charlotte is, um, is really, they understand how important you know, inclusive and good community engagement is to the future success of this city. And so one of the topics that's been in the news a lot recently is the city's rewrite of its development rules. And, you know, I think there's been um, a lot swirling around about whether eliminating single family only zoning and allowing more duplexes and triplexes is a good thing. That seems like it's really emerging as a flashpoint. I'm just curious, what do you think of both the idea of adding more density in existing single family neighborhoods and also how the process has been? You know, there's been some talk that maybe there hasn't been enough community engagement around the um, Unified Development Ordinance and the vision plan. I know coronavirus has made that hard. What do you think about all this? Well, you know, I'd, I'd say that, you know, Ty War, our planning director, you know, he's the right person in that job at the right time. You know, he understands the value of inclusive community engagement. He's open to new ideas and the, the, the opportunity to uh, look at things a little different than the way we've looked at them in the past, you know, under his watch. And, and, it's, and we talked about, you mentioned the, the, the comprehensive plan that's, uh, that the city is undertaking. I mean, that's a major undertaking to, uh, to take that on. And, and as you mentioned, the pandemic has made it much tougher to be able to implement meaningful community engagement, but it's, it's just it's just prolonging the time to get it done, and and I think the ch the challenge is this, you know, uh, for many years we've had adopted area plans throughout throughout the county, right, throughout the city, various neighborhoods, and and communities were involved in helping to develop those adopted plans. The problem is that those plans are old. And on one hand, there's been so many changes, both social and physical changes that has happened throughout our city, but we're still using those plans, you know, to uh, look at rezoning decisions today. Those, those, those plans are 10, 15, 20, 30 years old. And it makes it much more difficult, you know, when the community 
you know, is providing input based on old plans, you know, on a rezoning decision that developers are, 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 are trying to push today is really unfair to both the developer and the community because a lot has changed and the only adopted plan that we're using to determine whether it's a good rezoning or not are old plans, you know? And so a new 2040 comprehensive plan will really make a difference in those planning decisions. And, and as it relates to mix of uses, mix of housing types within the neighborhood, I'll give you a really good example. You know, I live here in Westland Heights, historic Westland Heights. And, you know, I live in a single family home. On one side of me is a fourplex. And next to that fourplex is another fourplex. Across the street is a multi, a one-story multifamily building with single family houses on either side of it. And what that has done, while West, we, we developed a plan in West Heights probably over 20 years ago. And it, it, of course, property values has increased in this neighborhood, just like most inner city neighborhoods. However, what has helped West Heights maintain some sense of affordability is the mix of housing types. You know, there there's some some you know when a, you when you only have a 400 or 500 square foot unit, you know, within uh, a building, it's only so much you can go up on those units, and so it makes it more affordable by having a mix of uses, and you don't have a neighborhood that has 100 percent all single family homes throughout the neighborhood. So I think that has really helped Westland Heights. I mean, I, and, and I think the other part that has helped too is that it's this historic neighborhood. You just can't go in and start tearing those small units down to build four and 5,000 square foot homes like they've done in some of these other communities. And so I think the idea of looking at, you know, how we plan in these neighborhoods and, and the need to, to be able to provide a mix of different uses, uh, housing types within the neighborhood, it makes a lot of sense to me because I live it every day. I mean, we, you know, we have a diverse of, you know, uh, we have a, a, a diverse uh, group of people in Westland Heights, residents who's been here a long time and a lot of new residents. And it's made the community stronger. You know, it's a stronger neighborhood when you have more diversity, both socially, racially, uh, economically. Uh, it provides a better neighborhood. So I think it. Uh, I think it's important, and and it's, it also creates more interest in architecture and design to walk into to go into a neighborhood and see all the homes looking alike, uh, looking the same. And uh, so I think it really helps to to really look at how we look at lots and neighborhoods and the need to be able to provide a mix of uses within those neighborhoods, a mix of housing types. Yeah, and that resonates with me. I lived in Dilworth for a long time and I was always renting there, but I was able to do that because there was um, a duplex, a fourplex, and um, a townhouse development that over the years, my wife and I were able to hopscotch between and you know, we loved that. Mm -hmm. We never would have been able to spend any time in that neighborhood 
if those different housing options weren't available. And I think when you look at Charlotte's older neighborhoods, there are just a lot of different types of housing mixed in that you're kind of so used to seeing that unless you're really looking for it, you know, you don't even realize as you're walking down a street in Elizabeth, Dilworth, Myers Park, Wesley Heights, a lot of older neighborhoods like, oh, there's a there's a duplex in between those two single family houses. It just feels mm -hmm. natural. And, you know, it's not a problem because you would assume that, you know, we would have a lot of problems, you know, or challenges. I think it's a perception more than anything, you know, but. You know, we have, like I say, like the, the, the fourplex next door, the backyard is mostly a parking lot. We haven't had that one problem, I guess, in 12, 13 years we've lived here with any of our neighbors, you know, and that's not what people perceive, you know, and why they fight these kind of things. But it makes for a better community when you can have a mix of uh of uses, a mix of housing types. It really promotes neighborhood diversity. Well, one of the projects that you're involved in that I think is really interesting and illustrates a lot of the tensions and changes and disparities and opportunities that are at play in neighborhoods throughout our region is in the Smithville area of Cornelius. Tell me a little about that. For people who aren't familiar, could you just kind of lay out what Smithville is, what's been going on there, and what your work is trying to do? Well, Smithville is a um, sort of a one of those urban neighborhoods that's in the suburban part of our community that's been there for a long time. You know, where predominantly African African American that is dealing with some of the same challenges that we're dealing with here in Charlotte, uh, with some of the urban neighborhoods around Charlotte you know, trying to figure out how to deal with change with all the development that's happening around the neighborhood. And so I think it's important that that neighborhoods take take control and and control their own destiny instead of sitting back and not doing anything and allowing the private sector to influence their future. And that's what happens if you do nothing, you know, and Smithville decided that they were not going to do nothing. So they came to us a few years ago and wanted us to assist them in developing a plan to help deal with the type of issues that come about in these neighborhoods where folks who have been living there for years oftentimes get forced out because they can no longer afford to live there. And um, and so, you know, the Smith, the Smithville Coalition, which is made up of some of the, uh, which is made up of all residents of the neighborhood, basically, uh, which supports the Neighborhood Association, they are, they, are, they were formed uh, to really help deal with these kind of issues. So they hired us to come and work with them to develop a plan for their neighborhood. And what, you know, what really made it very exciting to us is when we really got into it, you know, we saw that a lot of the single family lots within neighborhoods were very large. And it made it easier to come up with a plan that would help support the existing residents so that it wouldn't be forced to have to leave. You know, economically, I guess, when you have a lot 
that actually could become two lots <laughs> opposed to just one, where you can continue to live in your home and you can take half of your property that really hadn't has is not being used and to create another complex, another unit uh, for, other, for someone else to live, it really helps uh, deal with this whole issue of economic challenges and displacement, you know? And so, so we were able to come up with a plan that did that, that really worked with the community, that provided a lot of options. And I, and I will tell you that, you know, Smithville has a big advantage because it's very fortunate that they have residents within the community with special real estate and affordable housing expertise who will actually lead the redevelopment of this community. And that makes a big difference. You know, it will help control future development and ensure that the residents are able to continue living in the community if they desire to do that. And, you know, I mean, to, and to be honest, the best way to control gentrification is to have the development and revitalization led by grassroots community organization. However, it's absolutely essential that they have folks with expertise in real estate and development, or they will be set up to fail. And we, we have several examples of that right here in Charlotte. And so I think that's what, you know, Smithville has a big advantage because they have uh, individuals who are providing their time and their talents uh, to help make sure that the plan that we are really still working on, um, you know, it's going to be successful, you know, uh, relative to making sure that you're able to increase the, and, and one of the things we're doing there, we just talked about it here in Wesley Heights. One of the things we're doing there is providing a mix of housing types as well. Uh, not just single family homes, you know, wherever we can squeeze a, a, a duplex or triplex or fourplex within the community to create, create density while maintaining and keeping the existing fabric in the community. That's what we, that's what's in this plan. You know, I think that that really speaks to, it's not a contradiction, but something people don't see a lot of the times, the fact that development and redevelopment can lift up a community while not pushing everyone out. I think a lot of times in the the popular dialogue, it's kind of a, a binary. It's portrayed as if there's development, everyone here will have to leave. And I think that this project and, and the work you're doing kind of points to a different way to look at it. You know, you can't freeze a community in amber, but development and change doesn't have to mean mass displacement. That's right. And I think what has helped also is that the town of Cornelius has been very supportive. I mean, they they understand the challenges and I think they've also gotten funding from Mecklenburg County. So, you know, this is a, you know, Smithville is a really good example of the community working with government, you know, with, with both, with all the, the partners having the same goal in mind. And that is to make sure that there's a, a future vision and a plan in place that supports the existing community that are there, allow them the opportunity to stay there if they want to, while also allowing, allowing other developers and others uh, to come into the community and participate. But it's based on 
what the community want, not having to react to what a developer want to do. Uh, so I think that really make and it makes it easier when developers do come in, they know what they can and cannot do. And it really solves a lot of problems that exist in changing neighborhoods. And it's not just about the residential side of things. You're also involved with the Excelsior Club and the effort to preserve, repurpose, and reimagine that space. For people who aren't familiar with that, can you just give a, a quick summary of that project and your involvement with it? And maybe most importantly, why it really matters for the community that the Excelsior Club and buildings like it are not just wiped off the map? Well, as you know, Charlotte has done a poor job, you know, uh, saving historic structures. And, and those in the black community is really no exception. You know, if you are black and you've lived in Charlotte for any significant amount of time, you have either visited or heard about the Excelsior Club. If you want to know what's happening in the black community in business or politics, you could always find out at the Excelsior Club. You know, it was the ultimate place for real community engagement that happens to also have great food and entertainment. It was the leading black private social club in the Southeast. And I mean, believe it or not, I think people may not realize this, but I mean, they had musicians visited, visiting the uh, Excelsior Club like Nat King Cole, Louis Armstrong, James Brown, Sam Cooke. I mean, and many others. I mean, it has a history of fellowship, engagement, community activism, you know, civic uh, groups uh, were able to go there and meet. Uh, just a tremendous amount of history happened at the Excelsior Club. And we were fortunate to be working with the new owner who purchased the Excelsior Club, you know, Darius Anderson out of California with Kenwood Investments to, to try to help find a way to uh, repurpose the place and save it, to try to make sure that what comes out of the new Excelsior Club uh, is based on community feedback and input. And again, promoting the history and culture of the Washington Heights community where the West, where the Excelsior Club is located. So that's really the, the idea. The owner is really committed to making sure that what comes out of this, the redevelopment of the Excelsior Club is one that is really celebrated by the community. But it has a tremendous amount of history. And I, I'm not sure it's, it's probably not very many places in Charlotte that has had the kind of history that the Excelsior Club has had. Yeah, and that kind of, I think, counters some na uh, narratives about Charlotte, too. I moved here from um, the Washington, D.C. area, and it's kind of like, oh, this Charlotte's not a city of culture, of art, of history. And I think a lot of those narratives are because we've allowed things like the Excelsior to fall out of our public consciousness and be wiped away a lot of the time. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, it's just like, yeah. And it's, it's just like what happened in, in Second War with Brooklyn Village. I mean, you know, you can just imagine that at one time, the whole area by Midtown was connected to Second War and Brooklyn Village until Independence came in and divided that community. Pearl Street Park was actually part of Second Ward High School. It was the athletic fields 
for the uh, sports program. And of course they tore down Second Ward High School, but fortunately they kept the gymnasium. And we were able to work with the Second Ward alumni and the county to help restore the gymnasium so that it can be used by the community, particularly by the Second Ward alumni. And it was just fascinating when they opened up the renovated facility and to see some of the Second Ward alumni members show up, some in wheelchairs, you know, just celebrating the reopening of that facility. Uh, it means a lot. And I think the community was very appreciative of Mecklenburg County in supporting some funding to restore that building. And it means a lot to the community. You know, despite the, the bad things that were done that I think everyone understand that moving forward, we have to do better. So how do you get so passionate about these issues and where does your interest really spring from? I mean, I hear it, I hear it in your voice as you're talking about it, which you don't always hear when you're talking to people either in the planning and development fields or in general. Well, you know, I was raised in Baton Rouge, Louisiana in the same type of neighborhoods that we work in now. And I stumbled into the architecture profession. I wasn't, you know, no one in my family had gone to college. And my father, my grandfather, my uncles, all the males older than me and my family were brick masons. And I think they would have been happy had I just become a brick mason like everyone else. But I will tell you that growing up in Louisiana as a, as a kid, and going to work with my father, my grandfather growing up and being in the hot, humid weather in Louisiana during the summers where my friends were out playing and I had to go work. You know, uh, I had to really think deep and hard and deep whether that's what I wanted to do. And, you know, while I had no plans to go to college, because I had no one in my family had gone and I couldn't relate to college. I kind of stumbled into it. Uh, one day I happened to be on uh, Southern University campus, which was only two miles from my house. And I ran into a, a, a guy who grew up in my neighborhood and he graduated a year ahead of me from college. And so I stumbled into him and uh, he took me up to the studio where he was taking classes and he was majoring in architecture. And that was my, and so after then I was able to connect the dots because when I started researching architecture, you know, I got really excited about it. And, but prior to that, I had met someone who was going to college and and it started, I started thinking about, well, maybe I can go to college, you know? And I, I never forget going up to Southern University and asking them about majoring in architecture after going into my friend's studio. And they looked at, at what I had taken in high school and they, they felt like I wasn't prepared for college because my high school, which had integrated when I was in eighth grade, really hadn't prepared us for college particular young black boys, they never thought that we would go to college. So they never connected us with counselors at the school or anything. And I didn't get it from home. And so I ended up 
uh, Southern allowed me to take classes in my first year that I should have taken in high school. And so I doubled up on my classes and took more classes. And I got into the program, a five-year architecture program. And after five years, I graduated the most outstanding student. And it wasn't because I was smarter than everyone else, but it was because I got excited about architecture. I got, I saw that it was something I can do. And uh, it was something that I was prepared for because I took art and drafting in high school. I didn't know why, but I enjoyed it. And I was able to connect the dots after I went into that architecture program at Southern and see what my friend was doing in class, you know? And that's when, you know, I just started believing in myself, you know? Uh, I was an average student in high school. I just did enough to get by. But when I got to college and I saw that, I realized I had potential. I got real excited about it, you know? So that, that's how I stumbled into architecture. And then after being out of school for a while, I began to struggle because, you know, I had worked for, I would say in five years, I had worked for, in five and a half years, I worked for six architecture firms. And so I was starting to think that I had picked the wrong profession because of, as you know, the architecture profession is a white profession. And until I got to Charlotte and had an opportunity to work for Gantt Huberman Architects, which is the firm that Harvey Gantt, former, our former mayor, and his partner founded many, many years ago. Uh, you know, when I got there, I was there for 12 years. Even though I stayed at my, I averaged about a year less than a year at the first five or six firms I worked at. But when I got there, I stayed there 12 years because they allowed me to learn every aspect of the profession. You know, from the beginning, working with a client, all the way through construction. And that really gave me the confidence to start my own firm. Uh, you know, Gantt Human Architects was a firm that was founded on community involvement. Harvey Gantt was a former mayor uh, that's what inspired me to run for the Board of County Commissioners back in 1994 um, when I was working for that firm. And that's something they promoted, they supported, and that's why we do the same thing uh, at our firm at Neighboring Concepts. We really promote and support people getting involved in the community and, and trying to help make our community a better place. And, uh, and I, I give all the credit to Harvey Gantt uh, and Gantt Human Architects and his partner, Jeff Huberman, for really giving me the opportunity to learn and grow and to become the person that I am today. And it's because of the neighborhoods that I grew up in that give me the passion to try to do what I can to try to help people in these communities uh, appreciate where they live and realize that their communities are just as good as communities anywhere. As you can see, I'm getting emotional, you know, because this is something I care about. You know, when you grow up in communities that don't have, that do not have places for kids to play, there are ditches on both sides of the streets, 
nowhere, nothing but basketball. Uh, you know, they often find other things to do that are not good. And, uh, and that still exists, you know. So I feel like God allowed me to become an architect so that I could not just be another architect, that I can go into the community that, that like the ones I grew up in and make them better, you know. Uh, communities that others try to avoid, to try to make them a better place for people to live and make them feel better about themselves. And I think that's, that's what we have to do as architects, to not always look at the next dollar and how can we make a dollar? You know, we have to go and give back and use our talent to, uh, to make our community better. I can hear in your voice just the passion you have for that change. Yeah, and one other thing I would say too is that I, you know, I couldn't do what I do without the folks that work with us in neighboring concepts. Uh, I think we have a, a diverse staff of individuals from different backgrounds and they are as passionate as I am about the work that we do. I mean, I, and I think that that's what makes it happen. You know, I mean, if I had this, if I had this passion by myself, you know, it just wouldn't, it wouldn't work. But, but having people who care about the community they live in, the community they work in, and that we can, we can provide our talent and services to our community and make a living doing it, you know? I mean, that's a blessing. So as someone who's had a really long history in this community and who's gotten the chance to see a lot of the issues that we're facing through a lot of different lenses, if you could change one thing about development, growth, how we're building this community, what would you change and why? I tell you, Eli, it's, it's hard picking one thing, <laughs> but, but I, I would say that first, I would say respect the voice, ideas, and thoughts of the average everyday citizen. And I think that would make a, a big, big difference. But I, I think another thing I would say is we need to try to build our transit system to include some affordable housing units that's walkable to our future transit stations. I think we missed that opportunity on the, on the uh, first transit line that we've done. And I think it's a great opportunity to make sure that, that people who are, who are struggling, that they, they have an option whether they need to own an automobile or not, you know? And, uh, and I say make, making sure that there are affordable units along the light rail, I think, will really help deal with that. And finally, I would say we must also think about the lack of diversity inequities during planning and development decisions. Uh, you know, we have to think about those inequities while we're doing the planning because it has to be intentional from the beginning, not an afterthought. And I was trying to think of an example, you know, and I, I said, and it would be like designing spaces based on a future pandemic, but designing the spaces first, then thinking about the pandemic afterwards and how to encourage and support social distancing, you know? And that's the same thing about, in, sometimes we often not think about inequities while we're doing planning, you know, but we have to be intentional about it. 
you know, it has to influence decisions uh, as we uh, design. Uh, we have to think about those things. So, uh, sorry, but I gave you three. You asked for one. But... <laughs> no, it's okay. I think, um, <laughs> yeah. you know, I think it's tough to pick any one because everything is so connected. And, exactly. You know, if this uh, if this past year has taught us anything, it's that I think it's a lot easier to plan up front and think about eliminating inequities on the front end rather than trying to reverse engineer inequities out of the system decades down the line. So hopefully mm -hmm. that's a hopefully that's a lesson people are taking taking seriously. Yeah, that's right cuz one thing this pandemic has done is it really has sort of highlighted a lot of the inequities that does exist in our community. It it, it just puts a puts a light on them, you know. And hopefully we learn something from that. Well, Daryl, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. I really appreciate it. Where can people find out more about you and your firm if they are interested in uh, learning some more? Yeah, they can go to our website, uh, neighboringconcepts.com, and uh, you'll learn more about our firm and uh, the type of projects that we're involved in and uh, what we're doing. Great. Well, thank you so much. I hope you have a great rest of the day and hope to talk to you soon. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. Thanks for joining us on the Future Charlotte podcast, produced by me, Eli Portillo, at the UNC Charlotte Urban Institute. Keep looking to the future, Charlotte.